I have to say that I am nervous every time I stand up here. I know that. Uh, but um, this series I'm actually, I'm, is really dear to my heart, and so I'm trying to express things, going to try to express some things to you through this next series. It's going to be about eight weeks. Um, you'll be doing some of this same work in your small groups. I was thinking about uh, this, this issue, this thing I've been wrestling with, and I shared with Paul. I'm really bad at... Um, naming things. I just call it Hebrews 12 or whatever it is that we're talking about. So um, Matthew 15, if you want to find your Bible, that's where we'll be today. Uh, but uh, Paul said, well, it's you, so let's call it unbalanced. <laughs> Joke I get to use one time. Let's begin with this. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that this saying is trustworthy Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Sin could be defined a lot of different ways. We might talk about it like the breaking of God's sort of law or God's will, like God wants something from you or for you, and you said, forget it, God, I have different plans. Sin. What would follow if that was all sin was, what would follow from that is then the solution to that problem is simply that we don't know what's right or wrong very well. And because of that, this thing fell off again. And because of that, what we need to do to meet that gap or that problem is we need to create more educational opportunities, right? The problem is we're not doing what's right. We are doing what's wrong. And so what we need to do is we just need to re-educate ourselves. So more Bible studies, more sermons, more uh, prayer meetings, more hymns in the car or listening to Christian music, more of that stuff to just kind of dump and educate yourself towards rightness. That has been the way the church has operated. That's the way I've operated. But there's something I have to tell you about me. I know right from wrong very well. And I frequently choose wrong anyway. Anybody? Which means then education is not the problem. Knowledge is not the issue. There's something that's deeper at work in us. For a long time, there was a prevailing wisdom. I think I even talked about this maybe earlier this year. It's one of my favorite things I learned this year, um, uh, reading The Economist. Um, uh, One of the prevailing things about the wisdom of the world for a long time was that people are logical. And so if you want to get them to purchase a car, you need to convince them that your car is better, right? So you have something like this. I know that you can't see this, but this might be the stupidest line in a car advertisement I've ever seen in my life. Right here. I know you might not be able to see it. With a stronger, sturdier chassis. Well, I must buy this immediately. I'm actually not really entirely sure what that is. But I know that I am not, somehow this new chassis will make me right. We can see that this, the idea is logical people will see that sturdier chassis and make a better decision than the other car they were going to get because they're logical. We make decisions. But a man by the name of Dr. Thayer challenged this just recently, received a Nobel Prize for his work in it to say people are not logical at all. In fact, we make decisions based on emotion and history far more than sturdy chassis. Chassis? Have I said it wrong? I like that Carrie Funk just corrected my car pronunciation. Put this on YouTube, guys. Ellen? 
Well, one of the two of you. <laughs> Nevertheless, the advertisers... Okay, enough correction, all right? We've got it. <laughs> I said it wrong. We're moving on. <laughs> all right, so the advertisers get this, though. Advertisers got this long before the church has got this because we have this now. Look at that car. Look at that car. It's irresistible. It's intelligent. It tells me nothing about the car, right? But this creates an emotional reaction, a desire, shiny. We're basically giant raccoons. We just go after shiny things. And so shiny, big, like, so you can see the difference there. So, so let me just point this out then. Let's just suggest for us, I better take that off the screen. We'll never get anywhere. Let me just suggest this. If I as an individual, right, as a person, cannot be trusted to make a logical decision about whether or not to buy store brand Pop-Tarts or regular Pop-Tarts, logically, what might I be missing in my faith? Right? Because a lot of times we keep our faith here. In fact, when you come to church, most of what we engage is here. But there is a lot more of you than just here. And our our decisions and the things that we do, our responses and our brokenness is all reflected from here as much as it is here. A lot of these ideas that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks, in fact, um, some of the main ideas will come from a book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality. You'll be talking a little bit about that in your small groups. You won't be reading it, but you'll be talking a little bit about some of these ideas But uh, one of the images that this book presents and I think is very good is this image of an iceberg, kind of what we've just been talking about. An iceberg is, of course, dangerous because upon the surface you have a mountain of ice, but what you don't see underneath is exactly that. There is so much that is happening that you will not touch until you run into it, wreck your life, make a fool of yourself, break someone's heart, break your heart, break God's heart. All this stuff is happening underneath as opposed to what is just happening on the surface. And one of the things that we need to begin to recognize is that real change is not just information about who God is, but beginning to ask the questions of where the real information about who God is comes into contact with why I continue to do the things I know I shouldn't do. Those two things have to connect, and they have to connect very deeply. Otherwise, we are just skimming the surface. Jesus gets at this very well in several places. First, Mark chapter 7, he says, From within a person, out of the heart of a person, comes evil thoughts. And then after that, Jesus gives what we call a vice list, a list of things that people do. So out of, out of this underside, underneath stuff, that, that, that piece of the iceberg of our lives, our emotions, our thoughts, our histories, those things we don't even see, those things that run in the backgrounds, the abuses and the slights, all of that stuff that is happening in us is forming and pushing our actions forward, Jesus says. It's coming from underneath and emerging on the surface. He says something similar in Luke six forty-five: The good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure in his heart produces evil because out of the abundance of the inner person, the heart, the will, the desire, the history, all of this stuff, that is where we have our real motivations. 
I like this way that he puts it in John. We actually return to this. This is more of a positive I- instance. These two are kind of negative. Out of the, the deep stuff, negativity can come out. But Jesus puts it positively in John seven thirty eight. He says, whoever believes in me roots themselves in me, for I am the true vine and you are the branches, as Eric just talked about, right? Whoever roots themselves in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I like the plurality there. Do you like that? Rivers. Just overflow. That is, the abundance of who we are actually manifests itself on the surface. But oftentimes we're so busy with the surface, we're so busy with the knowledge, that we don't actually get deep enough into ourselves to ask the question, why am I offended? Why am I upset? Am I really concerned? Am I really loving? Am I really loving God even in this They reveal that truth. And I think this is why so few Christians ever experience real transformation in their lives. I think this is why many times we have Christians who are really only one year old and they just relive the same year after year after year. And we don't actually have mature, grown up, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old Christians. People have been in the faith and have lived that way for so long because we skirt the top. And this truth really bothers me, and I think it's real. You can ponder it and think about it, disagree, we'll talk about it, but I really believe this. I love Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. You know this story. It's an old story. I don't need to go into it. But you remember Jesus walking by. Zacchaeus is just kind of this dog of a dude. Nobody likes him. He's up in a tree. And he says to Zacchaeus, come down. I'm eating with you. At no point in that story do we get Jesus saying, let me tell you why you're wrong. Isn't that interesting? He didn't need to correct his knowledge. Zacchaeus was a Jew. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. He went to to Sabbath school just like everyone else. That wasn't the issue. The issue was not knowledge. The issue was the heart. The issue that there was something really broken. The issue was greed. The issue was whatever it was that was in him. And Jesus encountered him with love, and love transformed him. What we so often do is we encounter people with our thoughts. That's why we don't experience change. Rather than encountering people with real and genuine love and allowing that love to overwhelm them so that that love can produce interest, which produce growth, which produce the ability and the permission for you to get in there and to say something true to them. Too many of us think that we have permission to speak truth when you've never even asked that person where they grew up. So where are you going to get with them? The issue, as I said, is this undercurrent. And over the next few sermons, we're going to be asking those questions. We'll be pulling out some little taglines, some ways in which I think Christians run from God. That we mask who we really are. That we stay at that surface and we never go any deeper than that. Because we're able to. And one of the ways that we do this is that we use God to run from God. One of the most common ways is we use God to run from God. I'll give you a scriptural example. If you want to turn your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 15. Um, If you want to grab and kind of follow along and read exactly what I'm reading, it would be there on page 820. Or you can look up here where I have it uh, in block text form. Either way. 
The Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus. So these are the cream of the crop. These are the smartest dudes. These guys have went to seminary. They've got PhDs. They've read the scriptures. They know them. Right? They come to Jesus uh, from Jerusalem. So they're from the seat of power and authority. And they come to Jesus and they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your traditions. God commanded, and here Jesus goes back and kind of quotes from Moses. God commanded this. Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles or hates or sort of is disobedient in that way towards father or mother must surely die. That's a pretty serious uh, judgment, isn't it? Big deal. But you say, Jesus says, you Pharisees, you scribes, you Sadducees, you've created a new kind of tradition. What's that tradition? If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is now given to God. In other words, the way I would have prepared for you or taken care of you because you're my parent and I've, you know, you've taken care of me and now it's my turn to take care of you. That thing I used to do for you, now I'm not going to give it to you at all. I'm going to give it to the temple. I'm going to send it away. It's going to God. You get nothing. You're on your own. He says... If that's the case, you have said he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God with your hypocrisy. Now, uh, we we are tempted to turn this text into a very two-dimensional text. That is, Jesus is the good guy, the Pharisees are the enemy. Jesus cares about people, uh, the Pharisees don't care about people. Jesus cares about God, the Pharisees, they just want money. That is not the case. Don't turn people in the Bible into two-dimensional enemies, right? What was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was somebody, usually a a child, a male child from a very young age who learned at the feet of the rabbi. They would have spent hours poring over scripture, so much so that they would have memorized probably at least, hear me, at least the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Have you ever read Leviticus? Have you ever read that? Imagine memorizing Leviticus, have you ever read numbers? Lists and lists. Like, imagine memorizing that. That sounds horrific. But their commitment to God was so deep, that's what they did. They fasted two times a week. They prayed five times a day. Like, I mean, there was a rigid life of discipline. Currently in America, our statistics are that the average church goer, so the, the, the devout, like somebody says, what church do you go to? And you can rattle off right away. I know my church. I know where I go. That average family in America, 1.5 times a month appears at a church, which means for the average American Christian, we have enough energy to give God an hour a month, right? So when we compare our faith to the faith of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about, So let us not dare look down our noses upon the Pharisees, right? But what we can say is that they have built something up, haven't they? They've built something up that that looks very good. I mean, think about the idea of washing your hands before you eat. I know some of you yell at your your kids about this. For them, they didn't have germs, right? They didn't understand that concept. They had them. They didn't understand the concept of it. Um, And so for them, it was a purity ritual. But just think for a second. How many of you guys, like, you're... How many of you have done this before, right? You go out to lunch, because many of you are going to do that after church on Sunday. It's Sunday. 
it's awkward. Everybody's getting their food at the same time. You're sitting there, do we pray or do we not pray? And you're kind of looking around the table, who's going to pray? Preacher's not here. I'm not sure who's going to do it. We can't throw him on the table. What's going to happen? And so we all start sort of like somebody eat a fry, another take a bite. And we're just kind of, until we're all mid-meal, like, okay, we're all sinners together. No one prayed. It's okay. Or we have an awkward, quick prayer before, you know, something happens. The Pharisees stopped what they did. And they washed their hands. Now this has a connection to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what did they do? They connected the outward cleanliness with the inward cleanliness. The outward cleanliness was a symbol of the inward cleanliness. But they began to make a mistake. They began to think that the outward actually affected the inward when Jesus says the inverse is true. In fact, it is the inward that affects the outward. See, they missed the boat on this. In the midst of their trying to be hyper-religious in their attempt to protect uh, the doctrine and the faith and the people in their attempt to try to keep things very holy and pure and righteous, they ended up laying on top of people burdens they didn't need to bear. In other words, their religion became a smokescreen for the real heart that they had. Because they're after Jesus. Why aren't you washing hands? And Jesus says, we're, he, we're preaching. And he, what are you talking about? Like, aren't there bigger? What are you talking about? And so what happens is they're, they're missing the bigger picture because their religiosity has created a framework of rule keeping. And that rule keeping makes them feel safe. Man, I tell you what, rules make you feel safe. If you know what's right and what's wrong and it's written on the list, you can immediately identify your enemies and your allies, can't you? We Christians love that. We love it. Pharisees loved it too. But in the end, their heart wasn't for purity. Their heart wasn't for Jesus. Their heart wasn't for the people around them. Their heart was for the rule. Why do you not keep our traditions? This is how we do things. Why are you not doing it this way anymore? And Jesus says, how you do things doesn't matter. Where is your inner person? Where is your heart? Where is the love? Where is the expression that you're, that you're wanting there? So what happens is they end up running from God. They think they're actually honoring God through this. But in fact, what they're doing is they're running from God because they're so busy worrying about their hands and washing them or not washing them, they never ask the question, why are we so offended by something so minuscule? Does that emerge maybe from a brokenness in, in, in us that we feel the need to create categories and push people out? Right? These are the kind of questions that, are, that might emerge as Jesus pulls at them. Because I don't think Jesus looks at them with hate. When he says, you hypocrites, we kind of put that as an exclamation point. It sounds like a, a slam, and in some ways it is. But I hear it coming from Jesus because Jesus is love. Didn't we just talk about that? He's calling us toward him. He's calling the Pharisees toward him too. That's why he spent time with Nicodemus. That's why he spent time with any of these people to say to them, listen, I want you to understand it isn't about the outward, it's about the heart. And if you can't work on that, everything else that you put up as religion is just smoke and mirrors. It's just smoke and mirrors. You're in fact using religion. You are using God to keep God at a distance. You don't even realize it. So Jesus calls to them, and, and as you continue on in the story, he, he, does, he says the things that we talked about earlier, that it's out of the heart. It's not what you eat, it's not the uncleanliness of your hand, but it's what's coming from you that reveals really where you're at. And so here's a list of things that, that people 
These are not meant to sort of be accusatory or create guilt. I just want to throw up some statements and see if they resonate with any of you. And maybe you just think about it here. But here are some things and some ways in which people use God to run from God. So acting more Christian around people so they will think well of me. I know none of y'all did that today. It didn't happen here. But maybe in other places, that's something that we do. Harping on theological or hot-button issues out of fear and not concern for others. See, we could both talk about a hot-button issue. Paul and I could both stand up here and preach a sermon about the hot-button issue, right? And one of us could preach from anger or fear, and he will create enemies and frustration. And one could preach from uh, love and compassion and create a kind of different outcome. But the question really is where, is, where is our passion for this issue coming from? Is it coming from true and pure concern that someone is breaking their lives? Or does it come from our desire to be right? Which brings us to the next one. Using biblical truth as a way to judge and devalue others. And this is something that you can only determine inside yourself. Because it looks the same, doesn't it? On the outside, we're both saying the same thing. We all agree on the same thing. But inside, it can be much different. And somebody outside might never know. But listen, you are living in toxicity if you hold on to that. And God wants freedom for you. He wants you to plug into that vine and experience true liberation from all of this. Using our religious accomplishments to compete with others, this is a danger for anyone who is in any form of church leadership. Anytime you take a place on a stage, if you're in the music team, like, this is very dangerous. Our accomplishments are ridiculous, right? When you think about Jesus, when you think about God, what is any of us in any of our accomplishments? And yet we sort of use them to prop each other up and to, or to railroad each other or to sort of stand over one another. We make pronouncements like the Spirit is leading me or the Lord wants me to rather than saying, I think God is leading here. What do you think? Because if somebody comes to me and says to me, the Lord is telling me, I mean, how do you argue with that? I mean, I'm, well, okay. I, I, I don't know. He didn't send me the memo, so I, I'm not sure. Like, did he? Didn't he? Like, we aren't discerning anything. People just show up and say, well, this is what I think we ought to do. And there it is, right? Another way, using uh, scripture to justify the sinful parts of, and you could put anything here. You could put my family, uh, cultural values, national policies, instead of evaluating all of these things underneath the lordship of Christ. And lastly, uh, using God talk. So anytime we sort of throw the Bible out or throw God out or start talking about, oh, church this, church that, whatever, in order to hide the inner cracks that we have already going on. We sometimes fill the space with noise and with uh, uh, scripture when we're with each other, especially to sort of be Christian together. But underneath, there's lots of cracks and fissures and brokenness and needs that, that we should express to one another, but we're so afraid. And so we put God out as a smokescreen, as a front, to say, oh, I'm safely in the fold. Look at all the things I've got set up and right. Where beneath, we're deeply broken. 
And we need somebody to pass through that fog to reach us. But in order to do that, we have to open the door and invite, and not only inviting God, but inviting one another to have real conversations about who we are and why we're doing what we're doing and why we believe what we believe and where we ought to go next and all of these wonderful things that God wants to pour into your families and into your life and into this church. I see so much potential in this church. It is amazing. I am grateful every single Sunday to be here with you. You are incredible as a group of people. And if we dug deeper into it, and we began to sort of expose these fault lines in ourselves, we wouldn't become more, I don't know, broken. We'd become more healed. We might look less pretty to one another, but we've always been less pretty, so let's just be honest about it to begin with, right? The smoke screens we put up do nothing but create confusion and doubt and hurt. And Jesus says, listen, it's not about washing the hands. It's not about the outside. It's not about carpet or pews or any of these other things or anything else. It is about our connection to Jesus. I love that song that we sang, the first song. I actually didn't even know we were going to sing it. I'd never heard it before. It was amazing. Uh, but I love it that we repeated it like a dozen times. And I, I just, I begged it. God, we want your presence here. Everything else is going to go away. Everything else is going to die and break and get eaten by moths or stolen by thieves. Your presence doesn't change. And you are invited into the presence of the living God. But you will never reach the depths that you could reach if you use God, his word, or your own religiosity as a smokescreen from letting God come near and really poke at the parts that hurt. And the truth of it is that each and every one of us is an iceberg And each and every one of us have cracks and fissures that are really deep, that we are hiding from each other, and we are hiding from God. And I am echoing Jesus' invitation to stop hiding and to begin to expose that truth so that you could come to a fullness, a fullness of healing that you've never experienced before. I I said we were going to close on, oop, oop, too far. I went too far, Andrew. Bring me that verse back. This is from John chapter 7. Um, John chapter 7. I really love this um, verse again. Nope. 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 Yes. Nope. 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 And the, the first yes was wrong. The second no was right. No. <laughs> the, no. The answer is no. Keep going. There it is. Thank you. On the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd. You've got to imagine, like, the, the crowd must have been like, what is, what? Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd, thousands of people around, and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers. Not a river, not a spring, not a pool. Rivers. Like if you could get into that depth of brokenness that is in you, begin to expose it and allow God to truly transform it and to expose it to one another so that people can begin to speak the truth to you, both in criticism and in comfort. Not only would you have a river, but you will have rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Nile pouring out of you in life-giving power. 
God wants to transform each and every one of you so that the whole of you is exposed, so the whole of you can be healed. Because once the whole of you is healed, man, you can then be healing. You can be life to others. Because God's grace and giftedness is never meant to bless you only, but rather to heal you, enliven you, and send you out to make a difference. So what are you putting up in front of God to keep God from getting close to you? What smokescreen are you putting up here in this congregation amongst your friends, the close friends who, who know you? What smokescreens have you put up to keep people from really getting close to you? And that's what these small groups are about, not so that you expose all your inner demons. <laughs> You're not going to go around the room, but just a chance to say, to sit with that question and say, man, how have I been running from God? Because all of us have been doing it, haven't we? I did it all week. I got here and heard a song and said, wow, you've been running from God. It's a constant reminder. So stop running. Stop blowing smoke. Let God and the church come close and bring you real, true, life-giving forgiveness. That's what it's all about. The point of being a Christian is to bear fruit. You can't bear fruit if you're sick. So let's get well. Hmm? Let's stand as we sing this last song. And as we stand, think about these things. Ask these questions. Sit with that problem and offer yourself to God as best as you know how.